0: Um, I'm going to, like last week, I'm going to read from the, the Valley of Vision. Um, and I was preparing this this week, and I'm going, um, John and I are going to be talking a lot about the same things today. And to, uh, today, So um, you're going to get a taste of John's sermon during Sunday school, but then you're going to get the, a really full-blown version of this when, you, when we go back into church today. So um, I felt this was a very good prayer to start with so let's start with this and then i'll pray my father in a world of created changeable things christ and his word alone remain unshaken oh to forsake all creatures to rest as a stone on him the foundation to abide in him be borne up by him for all, all my mercies come through christ who has designed purchased promised effected them How sweet it is to be near him, the lamb, filled with holy affections. When I sin against your cross, when I sin against you, I cross your will, love, and life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation, disunion, distance from you, and having a loose spirit towards you you have given me a present, Jesus, your son, as mediator between yourself and my soul, as middleman who in a pit holds both him below and him above, for only he can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator as a realized object of faith and alone worthy by his love to bridge the gulf. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and by faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. And if I receive the word, I receive my Lord when he, wherein he is nigh. O thou who has the hearts of all men in your hand, form my heart according to the word, according to the image of your son, So shall Christ the word and his word be my strength and comfort. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and how it speaks to Christ's humanness and how that humanness um, you have used to draw us to yourself. Father, just give us open hearts and open minds what you have for us in this in jesus name amen so as i said last week i'm finding it very difficult to prepare these lessons because this is not like going through a book in a book you just take what comes and you go with it going through chapters of of this book it is like trying to put a puzzle together without knowing what the picture is so it becomes a bit of a challenge. Now, when I say that, some of you go, well, it's kind of obvious. It's about being gentle and lowly, right? Um, but let me read you one of the things he says in the introduction. Because I think for me, the struggle has been I always look for the logical argument and how this builds into a theological framework, and then how does that apply to my life, okay? This is what he says. There will be a fairly natural progression through the book from chapter to chapter but not so much as a logically building argument but rather looking at the single diamond of Christ's heart from many different angles so this is not necessarily about building a theology as it is about seeing Christ and his heart and understanding it from different facets different different places different perspectives so i'm going to really just work through the chapters and I, I'm using the questions as, as my springboard for this. And I'm going to be honest, some of the questions that he asked I thought were odd. And maybe it's just me, but I, I, it would encourage me to know that you felt the same thing when we get there, if you did. So, of course, the first question he asks is, what makes Jesus happy? I struggled here. Happy? What does happiness mean?:
1: Are you asking?: that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> What he says is, when we come to him for his grace, for his um, love and for his forgiveness. Mm-hmm.
0: What he says in the book. What's the definition of happiness? Anybody know? Anybody think to look that up? Because I, I found the choice of the word happiness to be, for lack of a better term, it's really odd. Because happiness is something, and, and this is, Oops, if I spell correctly, I had it up and then it closed. Um, I had it up in the Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary, a state of well-being and contentment, a pleasurable or satisfying experience. Okay, well, I also went to, because I tend to not trust that one, I tend to go to the Webster um, 1828 Dictionary. Because if you didn't know... Um, Webster was a believer and almost all of his original dictionary inputs had a scripture that went along with it. So let's see what he has to say about happiness. The agreeable sensations which spring from the enjoyment of good. The state of a being in which his desires are gratified. Now, what verse does Dane Orland tie Christ's happiness to? Does anybody remember from the book what verse he's using? It's in Hebrews. Hebrews 12:2 fixing our eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross now i struggled here because i've always been taught that happiness comes from things that happen hence the name happen happiness things that happen give us make us happy and joy is something we have that's not controlled by our circumstances. So what he's saying is what, gives Jesus, what makes Jesus happy, what circumstances makes Jesus happy. But the verse is saying for the joy set before him. So it's almost as if, I'm going to be honest, to me it doesn't evenly go together. But it does go together. Okay, so Hebrews twelve two fixing your our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. So, as Mary pointed out, the thing that brings Christ happiness, according to Dale Ortland, a or day in Ortland, um, was. Want to say it again? when
1: we come to Jesus for our when, when we've done something wrong when we
0: come for forgiveness and we come for- forgiveness is that thing that makes him happy okay now what from Hebrews twelve two? what is the joy that's set before him
1: that his people be that his people be made fully alive
0: be made fully alive what does that mean The joy of seeing people forgiven, word to for word. <laughs> okay, that's what he says in the book, right? The joy of seeing his people forgiven. And, and I'm going to tie something in here. You guys know I love the book of Genesis, right? I'm going to tie something in here that he never talked about, but I think it helps us to see where he goes in the book. Okay? Think about the book of Genesis. Okay? Uh, creation, chapter 1. Um, he goes through all these these... Days making things. uh, Day and night, land, sky, expanse, the sun, moon, and the stars, the fish and the birds, the land animals. And although he says he blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, it wasn't until he made man that he said to them. I think it's verse 23. Do you see the difference? There's a personal connection between the creator and the created. And we know that because he says, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. There's a connection there. And then when they fall, where where is God found? In the garden, in the cool of the day, walking. Now, would he just randomly have done this on the one day that they happen to have messed up? There was a relationship there. And the relationship was broken by disobedience. And the happiness that Dane Orland's trying to get us to see is the fact that through what Jesus is doing, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame because that forgiveness heals the relationship. The relationship what was created to, for us to, to have a relationship with God and to give God glory in our relationship with him was broken, and in Christ's sacrifice, that relationship is healed. That gives him joy. Why? We're going to come to that. Because this is important to understand. It's not simply because of the relationship. Please don't misunderstand me. Numerous times through the next three chapters, he's going to say, we need to be very careful here not to take one side of who God is at the absence of the other side of who God is. Okay? So yes, the relationship is important. Yes, God wants to see that relationship healed and we're going to see that through this process. So Hebrews 12:2, we said what was set before him? Joy was set before him. And what gave him joy was that that forgiveness, that that healing, that fulfilling Of the plan set forth since before the foundations of the world. Um, The verse that comes to mind is. um, Let me jump over here because I'm going to come back to this at the end. (coughs) Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love, predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That is being fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. And that gives Jesus joy. Because he's fulfilling God's plan. And in that fulfilling, our relationship is restored. So we just covered question one. We just covered question two. And now we're on question three. And he goes through a number of verses. He goes through a number of verses. Uh, Hebrews 7.25. He lives to make intercession for us. Do you hear that? He doesn't just live to make intercession. He lives to make intercession for us. Do you hear his heart? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? He's giving us that. He's interceding for us, not by random people that just happened to pull. He, he has chosen us and he's interceding for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He accomplished the cleansing of sin, and he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Eight uh, eleven, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He says this two other times in the Book of Hebrews. Now, this is something else he didn't touch on, but I think it's important for us to understand. There are two facets to his sitting down that I want you to get. First, he, he, he plays a double role sitting there. First of all, he's not standing anymore. He's not walking the earth anymore. He's not suffering anymore. He's not paying the price for sin anymore. He has seated because that task is finished. Because he said, it is finished. However, he remains seated at the right hand of God to be our intercessor, to be our mediator. John, to be our high priest so there's a double piece here. He's seated because the justice side is finished, but the high priest side continues. He continues to intercede for us because if he stopped interceding for us, our salvation wouldn't, our salvation would end because it's only through him that we are saved. Do you see the double facet? So that brings us to his role as bridge between man and God, right? Because that's his role as a high priest. He stands between, uh, in the book, he talks about how the king is God's representative to mankind, but the high priest is man's representative to God. And he is king and high priest, but what role is emphasized through the book of Hebrews? High priest because we need that constant intercessor that's standing before God the Father that says, eh, I don't care what Satan says, look what I did. Luke 5, uh, excuse me, Luke 15, 7, more joy over one who has repented than for the 99 that were left behind. John 15, 11, his joy overlaps the disciples' joy. I want to read this because... We get so caught up in Christ as God, and that's not a bad thing, That, but we tend to forget to look at Christ in his humanity. And we get into the last few questions in the chapter. You're going to see that um, Christ in his humanity, and John's. this is where I think, uh, and I haven't read John's sermon. I have looked at it, but I haven't read through it. But, This is where he's going. So I'm not going to go a lot into that. I'm going to talk about it for a minute. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy would be complete. He's the bridge and through his joy, we have completed joy. John 17, 13, he, he, it's the, a very similar phrase. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We can only have true joy. We can only have complete joy if Christ is the bearer of that joy. And this is where I, I've always struggled with the, the the choice, his choice and happiness. Christ is happiest when he is fulfilling God's will. Christ is happiest when, when sinners come to him because he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. But again, I remember last week, it's not everybody that, that comes because six verses before that, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles have been performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have lasted until today. So you have to remember that this is very specifically to those who come. He calls, we come. It's like your children, right? When I call you, you come. And Jesus is just saying, come, just come, just come with your weariness, with your heavy laden. Remember last week we talked about weary being those things in life that tear us down, that we don't have any control over. Heavy laden those bad choices that we make Well guess what we're coming back to that we're coming back to that. So I tied in Genesis already then now we're going to jump to chapter four in the book because here we, we're seeing Christ who is the high priest and we're seeing that he has joy in fulfilling what God has ordained since the beginning. He gets joy in our forgiveness. Now that facet. Is expanded into when we get to chapter four. In chapter four, he says in Hebrews 4:15, uh, "We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin." And he's going to spend a lot of time on a couple of words in in this particular verse. Particularly, the word "sympathize" is one that he spends a lot of time in the book on. And I'm going to be honest, um, when he says, well, the Greek word here and the Greek word here have the same root, and um, my reaction is, okay, i got to see it, so I go and look, because you're just looking for little things that are identical to see if what he's saying is accurate. Okay, So you go and you look at these things, and the thing that you discover is the word sympathize in 415, uh, the Greek word has to do with the idea that... um, He is with the sufferer. Do you think of Christ that way? In your difficulties? Your conflicts at work? Your conflicts at home? Your frustrations because things are not going the way you thought they would be going after 10 years in your life, in your marriage, in your job? when somebody disappoints you, when somebody betrays you, when somebody is taken away from you? Do you see, God, do you see Christ as the one who is with you to suffer? That's what he's saying. That we, we tend to, in, in, in American language, we, we tend to um, adjust what words mean but here, the Greek word for sympathize has to do with suffering with you. He just doesn't, oh, I feel sorry for you. That's what usually what we mean when we say sympathize, right? Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? That's kind of how it goes. I'm so sorry for you, right? When we say sympathize, that's kind of what we mean. But when you suffer with someone... You stand by their deathbed when they're in pain and you pray with them, which I've seen people in this room do for others. When somebody betrays you or somebody betrays uh, a loved one and people come alongside that loved one and try to love on that loved one, you're suffering with, that's what we're talking about, what Christ does all the time. Not just the once in a while that we happen to get it right. All the time he co-suffers with us. So thinking about that, question four, uh, Dane Orland jumps into solidarity. And I, especially in this current and concurrent climate in our world, I hate that word. Because it usually doesn't mean what people think it means. But he says, how does Christ's solidarity with us affect about our thinking about Christ? He says he sympathizes with us. He is our co-sufferer with us. How does that affect your thinking about who Christ is? is? Is God the one who sits up in heaven and pats you on the head when things go bad? that how you thought of Christ? He's sitting at the right hand. He's at a distance and he's just patting me on the head when things go bad. i am just be honest. That's always been my attitude towards it. When you mess up, when you sin, when you let people down and you feel like God is so far away and he's like, Just to let us know that he's a co-sufferer with us. The temptations that we struggle. The sins that we have. He's right there with us. Now, he's not committing the sin. So
1: think about that, that image of the yoke.
0: Would you expand on that? Because I didn't cover this. And you and Levi both talked about this to me afterwards. And I think your understanding of this would help in this situation.
1: Do you know about the idea of like, the animals together with the yoke? You, you, so, so one of the things he didn't bring out last week, and, and another, another reason you would use a, a yoke in agrarian terms is to teach. And you would, you would take your young animal and you put it with your older animal and you yoke those two together So that the old animal can teach the young animal. Now which animal do you want to tie it to? Do you want to tie it to the bull? Or do you want to tie it to the gentle cow? So when he talks about we're we're yoked with him and we're yoked to Christ who is gentle, we're not yoked to the bull that's going to drag us around the field and treat us harshly. We're yoked to the kind animal who's going to teach us easily and guide us gently anymore, or is that? No, that's what great. You were asking? Yes. So when you think the same thing you're envisioning here? When he's always there with us. If you go back to that yoke, we're tied neck to neck. I mean, we're closer than Brian mm-hmm. are, and I are right now. We're going to bump into each other. We can't. We can't get apart because we're held to him.
0: So uh, this was. This was for me a game changer because I've always thought my sin and, and, and in a spiritual sense it does separate us because it breaks that communion but it doesn't change where he is he's still right there it, it's it's always that phrase that I've told my kids at home I said, I said if God feels far away it's because not because he went anywhere it's because you turned away and every time you take a step away he's still there even though you think you're moving farther and farther away from him. And, and that's for me, that was a, that was a a game changer for me to think that even in the sin that I committed and that phrase that he used in the book last week, did it again. How could I do it again? He's still there. He, he, that doesn't change. He remains by my side even in my sin now this is important because why do our pain our suffering our sin isolate us from God or isolate us from Christ why does that happen Okay? Yes. Why? Why is God's holiness isolate you from who God is in your sin, in your pain, in your suffering? Is God isolating you? Remember, we're talking about Christ and his humanness, right? That's the difficulty with this book is he's, he's, balanced, he's walking a balancing act between the godness of who Christ was and the humanness of who Christ was. And there are aspects of this that seem like a Paradox. They seem like both of them can't be true at the same time. But as we've learned, you can have a baby and never have been with a man because it's happened, because God let it happen. You can be 100% man and 100% God because God did it. Do we know how? No. Does it matter how? No, because he just said it did. Okay, so we take that same faith when we go into these passages about Christ's humanness. So who's doing the isolating when you are suffering? We are. God, you're so holy and I'm so terrible and I obviously am a million miles away from you. I've sinned again. I've done that same thing three times in the last two hours and I'm obviously 10 miles away from you. And what does he say? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not very far away. He's just waiting for you to come to him. So, through this, he's trying to show us, Doug Dane Orton's trying to show us in this that it's not Christ who's far away, it's us who's far away. We are isolating ourselves from who he is. Right, I just read through Matthew yesterday. And- that That is so true, because the
1: only time in the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact, you can look through the entirety of Scripture, that there is a separation. is due to sin. The demoniac was separated because of sin. He was cast out. He was put outside. The only time Jews were cast outside the walls of the city were because of sin. But there was never a time when Jesus separated himself completely from his disciples. He was was always there. And even whenever he left, he said, I must leave for there will be one to come to comfort you, the Holy Spirit.
0: Have you read the book of Matthew lately? Sorry. Have you read the book of Matthew lately? The demon-possessed man. What's God do? Moves towards him. Mm -hmm. Paralytic who is also estranged from Jewish society, what's Christ do? Moves towards him. Mary Magdalene, who is probably the most wicked person mentioned in the book of Matthew, what's Christ do? Move towards her. The isolation is a human reaction, a sinful human reaction. Christ's heart is to move towards that, not away from it. You need to read the book of Matthew with fresh eyes. Look for the gentle and lowly Christ as you read it, because it will change your thinking about who Christ was. Think about this. He was God. He knew what people were thinking. And yet Judas was with him for three years and then the last night he still shared a table with him I'm telling you if it was me and I was him he wouldn't have spent 3 days with me let alone 3 years
1: you still him friend Hey Greg can I say something
0: Yes please and
1: this, this might be difficult but I, for us to hear for us to process but just a few months back and this is common knowledge we, we exercise church discipline on one of our brothers well Jesus treats we, we should when, when it says in Matthew 18 you know, we treat him like that we would tax collectors and sinners well how does Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners we should be reaching out to him even now so I'm just putting that out there and with as much emotion that it's, it's well within me and, and, and praying for him and Maybe we've been doing that. I, I don't know. But I'm just putting that out there. This is a perfect lesson. And yes, he may not be a believer, and we don't believe that he is, but if he is, we expect him to fully come back. So we should not cast him off. Yeah, yeah. From the Lord's Supper, yes. But.
0: Anyway. I mean, it's perfect. Uh, that's been my frustration with this. Because as I go through this, find more and more things that, man, my thinking is wrong about this. I wouldn't have allowed Judas to hang with me for three years. But what's Jesus do? He goes to tax collectors and sinners. What the Pharisees thought was, was probably the worst dig they could put on him was exactly who his heart was. He's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So if we isolate ourselves from God, what about, we've talked about what Christ, this is question six. What about Christ should pull against that? And, we've, and thank you for the connection to Matthew, because that's what should, should help us to see that that is not who the Christ is that, that we think he is. He's not pulling away from us. In our sin, he comes to us. So what does that mean? And here we jump to chapter five, and we come to Hebrews chapter five. Verse two. Gosh, being able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, or um, the other word is used, here is way, wayward, ignorant and wayward. Since he himself also is beset with weakness, I struggle with this because the first few verses here are talking about the human high priest, and Dane Ortland is connecting it to who Christ is. Because the next verse says, because of his weakness, he's obligated just as for the people to offer sacrifices for sins in the same way for himself. Well, that's not Christ, because Christ was sinless. But who who, who is he able to deal gently with? Well, the ignorant and the misguided, right? Or the ignorant and the wayward. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean the person who steals a candy bar and the person who... Uh, lies on their taxes, but the person who committed adultery or the person who murdered somebody, no, they're just too bad. Well, remember we talked about the weary and the heavy laden? Well, here it's the ignorant and the misguided. The ignorant, the one who sinned and didn't realize it. The misguided or the, the wayward, the one who did the wrong thing, knew they were doing the wrong thing and didn't give a rip. And it says he's able to deal gently with both of those. But Christ didn't sin. So the, one of the things that he said in the book on this chapter, and I'm going to close with this. Page 57. Jesus had zero sin. But he did experience everything else that it means to live a real human being in this fallen world the weaknesses of suffering the weakness of temptation and every other kind of human limitation various high priests throughout Israel's history were sinfully weak but this high priest is sinlessly weak and John I'm not even going to touch on the next piece because I think you're going to handle that so let me close in prayer and then um, we'll head out for John's sermon Father, we thank you for this book, how it it clears the air of things that we miss misunderstanding about who Christ is. Father, I pray that you will just help us to see Christ in a new with new eyes. Help us to see his humanness and his love for people and his gentle and lowliness as something that draws to us as sinners, not drives us away. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get together and worship because so many around the world don't have that right now. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen.